0: Our scripture reading this morning comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 6. It's on the next page in your bulletins, and we are reading again Matthew 6, uh, taking a look at verses 5 through 15. If you have your Bibles, I certainly invite you uh, to turn there and look at this text with us. Uh, this morning, we're beginning a new series, as, uh, working through, very slowly working through the Lord's Prayer And so our passage again from Matthew chapter 6 beginning at verse 5, let us give our careful attention to the reading of God's word. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. I doubt there is another passage in all of our Bibles that's more familiar than the Lord's Prayer. We pray it just about every single week at this church, joining millions around the world who pray this prayer. What are we to think about the Lord's Prayer? How do you think about the Lord's Prayer? One paragraph in our Bibles. Now, Luke has an account that's even shorter in his gospel, where probably at a different time, Jesus is asked, By his disciples, which is the title of our series, Lord, Teach Us to Pray. And this is how Jesus responds. This is Jesus' teaching on how we are to pray. Jesus says, pray like this. The God of all creation, right? Jesus is the agent of creation. Jesus is the eternal second person of the Holy Trinity. There never was when the Son wasn't. He comes and he teaches us how to pray. We would do well to listen. 20 seconds, it's all it takes to pray the Lord's Prayer. At the height of COVID, when we were all uh, life-soling our groceries, you know, we were supposed to wash our hands and, and sing the happy birthday song, you could also pray the Lord's Prayer in the time where you wash your hands. I think the majority of Christians think of the Lord's Prayer as training wheels for our relationship with God, training wheels for a life of prayer, because what's the whole point of training wheels? Is to take them off it's to advance to what you're actually supposed to do in in riding a bike now there's an argument and full disclosure i would make this argument none of my kids had training wheels we got them all balanced bikes because training wheels potentially probably stunt the hardest part of riding a bike which is the balance and so with training wheels the whole point is that you want to leave them behind because that's really not riding a bike Or maybe you never really learned to ride a bike, and so, you know, you could do it. It might be slightly embarrassing, but as adults, we can go get a bike with adult-sized training wheels, and we can ride that bike. And maybe that's how we think of the Lord's Prayer. It's something that you come back to. Um, I think it's really common to hear the Lord's Prayer as something that maybe connects you to a grandparent who was a believer, It connects you to a parent who you say, my my mom was very religious. And so to hear the Lord's Prayer, I'm not religious, but to hear the Lord's Prayer, uh, I I get this sense of nostalgia and sentimentalism, and I connect with my parent. But the point is to move on. Training wheels, not a good illustration for the Lord's Prayer. Let's move on. Maybe a, a better illustration of the Lord's Prayer is like a musical scale. This prayer is like knowing your scales. Now, what are scales but the building blocks of music? And so if you know music, you can listen to a Beethoven symphony, and really, what is his genius but playing with scale? And you can identify what he's doing if you know your scales. John Coltrane, boy, he knew his scales. And so is this prayer the building blocks, the structure of a life of faith? Is a life of faith riffing off of this prayer that Jesus taught us? Well, I think that's a good metaphor. It's closer, isn't it? Uh, My concern is that we all go back to being 11 years old in our clarinet lessons and our piano lessons. And our goal is we understand we need scales, but we want to get to the real stuff. We want to get past the scales. There's just not enough action. And so maybe better, let me leave you with this metaphor, and anytime I can use this metaphor, I will always use it. The Lord's Prayer is more like bread. Man, I love bread. I love bread. You know, thankfully, there are some solid gluten-free flour, so this can be an inclusive metaphor for everybody. But what is bread? At its most fundamental, what is bread? It's flour, water, salt, and a leavener. The most simple of foods, and yet, I mean, come on, one of the pinnacles of human achievement. Right? It's simple, but it's complex. It's basic, but it's nourishing. It's the most elemental of foods, and yet we've all had meals where the best thing on the table was the bread. One early church father put it this way. He said, the Lord's Prayer is the epitome of the whole gospel. So you see what I mean? It's simple, but it's, but it's nourishing. It's basic, but it's Everything. The Lord's Prayer is the prayer that God in Christ has given us to pray. How could we not listen to it? It contains, as we'll see, the very heart of the gospel. And yet, don't raise your hands when I ask this question. Who of us here have prayed this prayer with empty words? You don't have to raise your hands, right? Who here has heard these words of the Lord's Prayer fall on deaf ears? All of us. And that's why we're going to spend the next few weeks just chewing, slowly digesting this prayer together, because the goal is to understand it better so that we might pray it deeper, Uh, That it might form our prayer lives. That it might give fuel to those of you who are running on fumes. And I know there are more than a few of us who kind of feel like we're running on fumes. So would this be fuel for us? Might this prayer bring us to see Jesus more clearly? Because the one who taught this prayer, his life is this prayer. So this morning, we're going to look at who we're praying to. Just the first part of the address, which is our Father. What does it mean to pray to God as our Father? What does it mean to pray to our Father? That's the first point. How is it that we can pray to God as our Father? And then thirdly, why does it matter? Nitty-gritty, why does it matter on that that basic everyday level that we pray to God as our Father? All right, so first of all, this, this first question, what in the world does it mean to pray to God as our Father? Now, how you think of God will, of course, shape and influence how you pray. God has revealed himself. He has has given us information about how we are to think of him in a number of different ways in the scriptures. You can think of God as the creator, and that nails a lot of truth. Right? We are creatures. He is the creator. That is the fundamental distinction in all of scripture. He's on one side of the line. Everything else is on the other side of the line. It's good to pray to God as the creator. God is the Lord, and so we can update the language. We can say God is the boss, God is the king, God is the general, and those are true as well because they speak to God as the one who is sovereign, the one who has authority, the one who has power. God is a judge, and that's not presented in Scripture as just something that is negative. There are over a dozen psalms that we could probably paraphrase briefly by saying, our judge, hear our prayers. And if you look at the world and you see a place that is often wicked and unjust and oppressive and violent, and it makes your heart heavy, then you can imagine there are times where the most appropriate address for God in prayer is, our judge, where are you? But Jesus goes somewhere different when he says, no, here's the heart of prayer. Jesus says the essence of prayer, all of those are good. But Jesus says, no, the essence of prayer is elsewhere. The heart of prayer is communion with God our Father. And what does that mean? Well, three things I want to draw out. These, These are three threads that are woven together. They're all interdependent on each other. To pray to our Father means access, intimacy, And God for us. To pray to God our Father means three things it means access, intimacy, and God for us protestant reformer martin luther he was he was a pastor and so he's writing a catechism which is just an instructional booklet for for people in his church for families to go through and every every tradition has a catechism in the the reformation we of course have the westminster larger and shorter catechism as as binding over our church and and what we believe but here's what luther's catechism said and by the way all of the catechisms go through the lord's prayer Why do we pray to God as our father? And here's what Luther said. He said, God wants to encourage us to believe that he is truly our father and we are his children. We are therefore to pray to him with complete confidence, just as children speak to their loving father. So what's the word we want to highlight with that definition? I think it's confidence. Complete confidence. Confidence equals access. Now, I'm a dad, uh, When when, when my kids come to me and and they ask me to play video games, my answer is not always yes. Or if they want me to jump in the pool or if they want me to, to play ball with them, my answer is not always yes. But if they are in trouble, if they are scared, if they are hurt, if they are sad, I think I would do everything in my power to attend to them. And I'm limited, I'm selfish. I'm sinful. I have to fight against that. And yet that's something of what access means. It doesn't mean God gives us everything we want. He's too good and loving and wise for that. But it means that in our valleys of darkness, in our trouble, in our fear, in our hurt, in our sadness, God is with us. We have access. It's one of the chief benefits of what Christ has done. He has opened a door to the very presence of God. He has justified us, which is kind of Bible speak for, you are okay before God. The sin problem that has separated you from God has been done away with. You are at peace with God. But it's not just that God no longer has his animosity toward us as as rebels or, or, or as sinners. It's not just that we have peace with God. It's also, come with me, you have access to the Father. And so in Romans 5, we've been justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have obtained access by faith into this grace into which we stand. Ephesians 2, through Christ we have both access and one spirit to the Father. Ephesians 3, in Christ we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Him. Hebrews 4, let us then, because of what Jesus has done, with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. Hebrews 7, He is able to save to the uttermost who? Those who draw near. Those who will come near those who know their access. Tim Keller has this this great line, uh, the only person who dares wake up the king at three o'clock in the morning for a glass of water is his child. We have that kind of access. We have access, we have intimacy with God. In, In a healthy relationship, a father's reward to his child is the father's greater closeness. It's not a means to an end, it's not transactional, it's to be with the father That's something, of course, communicating what we have here with God. We are known and noticed by God. We find in God, our Father, that voice of approval, that well done that we were designed to hear. Adam was created to hear well done from his Father, his God, his Creator. And after the fall, all of us live our lives seeking some voice to tell us well done, some voice to tell us that we are accepted, some voice to tell us that we are approved, Jesus says, pray our Father, because that voice is yours. I love this line from John Calvin. He says, there is nothing in which we can benefit our fellow brothers and sisters more than commending them to the providential care of the best of fathers. There is nothing better than to encourage each other with the reality that that you are upheld and kept and preserved and protected by the best of fathers the god who watches over you you know who he is it's the best of fathers it didn't dawn on me until tuesday that we would look at what it means to pray our father on father's day i think that's god's sense of humor or my bad planning it didn't dawn on me i laughed out loud when i realized oh my goodness a whole sermon just on our father on father's day and i think that's really sweet but even as i prayed it's complicated Earthly fathers, for some of us, can complicate maybe what it means to relate to God as our father. And yet this is helpful uh, to, to be reminded that you know, we don't call God father because we project our experiences of our biological fathers onto him. All human fathers are measured, judged, and fall short on the basis of our experiences of God as Father. He is the standard. God is, is the, the father who stands in judgment on all human fatherhood. And so what this means is that if you have or, or had a complicated relationship with your dad, uh, you need to be reminded this morning that your father in heaven is so, so good. That that feeling of, of pain oftentimes is, is very validated by the fact that you have a father who's, who's so good to you. And yet, dads, I also think this is a great encouragement for us. We have such an important and powerful and precious calling, which is to be living parables of God's fatherhood to our children. We have this vocation that our kids might catch a glimpse through our fathering of the way better father they have in heaven for them. But it's not just a call. We also have a promise, don't we, dads? We have a promise, we have this reminder that we are above all, as dads, kept and upheld and preserved and protected by the best of fathers. That's for us too. And don't forget that. That's what it means to pray to God as our father. Prayer begins with this access and this intimacy that that God is for us, but how do we know that we can pray our father? It's kind of presumptuous, isn't it? And it is. So how is it that we can pray this prayer Why do we get to call God the Father? How can we address this one who, on the one hand, we're saying he is the creator king. He is is God almighty. How can we address him as father? And so, first of all, we want to put this on the table, right? To pray with intimacy toward God the Father is not a human right. This is nothing like the universal fatherhood of God and brotherhood of man. That doesn't mean anything. No, to pray to God as our Father in the way of Jesus is to live out of this so unique, specific, powerful relationship that we have. And how do we have it? Because we sons and daughters of God have been called and adopted by the Father in God's Son, who in His very essence is the Son of God. It's as if when we pray our Father, we are claiming our dependence on Jesus. In the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 12, we're told this of Jesus, of why he came. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Again, this is unique. This is powerful. It means something. This is not spiritual mumbo jumbo, it's unique in reference to the rest of the world. Your unbelieving neighbors and friends do not have God as their father, he is their Lord, he is their creator. He is their judge to whom they owe an account, but he is not their father. This is a unique and powerful relationship not only with the world, but also in redemptive history. Uh, In the Old Testament, God chooses the metaphor of a father to his son Israel. And so, for instance, in the book of Exodus, God calls Moses and he says, Go to Pharaoh and tell Pharaoh, I want my son back. Free him, liberate him. Another example from Jeremiah 3, God grieves the rebellion of his people, and he says, I thought you would call me my father. I thought you would call me my father and would not turn from following me. But something has changed. In the Old Testament, father is used toward God 15 times. It's a big book, isn't it? In the New Testament, which is just a third the size of the Old Testament, Father is used of God not 15 times, but 245 times. Once you get past the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it's only, about, it's only used about 30 times after that. Why is that important? What has changed? It's that Jesus is the true Israel. It's that Jesus is the faithful Son, and He beckons us to draw near with Him to the Father. To pray our Father, then, is to stake your prayer in the gospel. Do you see that? To pray our Father is to stake your prayer in the gospel. To pray to God as our Father is to live out the reality that Jesus, our elder brother, comes and he brings us along, and he doesn't say pray to the Father. He doesn't say pray to my Father. He says, come here, pray our Father. He passes on something of his relationship with God toward God to us. In Hebrews 2, we're told that Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. To pray our Father is to cling to our elder brother and to cast ourselves on his goodness and grace. To pray our Father is to proclaim the Son. To pray the Lord's Prayer is to exalt the Son. And as we'll see in the weeks to come, in the Lord's Prayer, everything we say is like a light. That shines on Jesus. Every petition points to him. Every petition prayed is made possible by his promise and by his precedent. Like, we feebly cry out, so often even in unbelief, our Father, and Jesus prayed it from the depths of his bones. Jesus kept God's name so completely holy. Jesus submitted to God's will. Jesus' own flesh is the bread of life. Jesus is the one in whom forgiveness is found. And he is the one who ultimately delivers from the power of sin and death. And in his faithfulness, in his victory, we have this right. We have this privilege. We saw this in our gospel reading this morning. God sent forth his son to take our humanity, not just to offer this example to imitate, but for us to join him. That we might have this spirit of adoption and cry with him, Abba, Father. To pray the Lord's Prayers to stand with him and call out to the God who gives himself to us, not just as his father, but ours. You ever had that experience in life, maybe with an older sibling or with a friend who has connections and they take you along? They say, come with me, I'll get you to the front of the VIP line. That's what this prayer is. It's like having an older brother with the connections eager to take you along for the ride. Don't stand back. Don't be afraid. Come and enjoy the presence of my Father. He wants you here. He delights in you. And we say rightfully, right? But I'm disqualified. I have no right to come into the presence of God. And Jesus says, you stick with me because you have every right. I gave you this right. You're with me. We're tagalongs. Riding on the coattails of our elder brother Jesus into the presence of God. Who we have the boldness To, with Jesus, call out our Father. So what does it mean to pray to God as our Father? It means access. It means intimacy. It means God is for us. Yeah, but how do I know that God is for me? And Jesus says, you stick with me. And so what difference does it make? Why does it matter on that day-to-day level for us as, as God's people? Why does it matter that we can pray to God as our Father? I want to bring up what I'm calling prayer traps. These are pitfalls. These are obstacles that keep us from praying rightly. And so, to begin, what is the biggest problem with our prayer lives collectively as a room right now? Prayerlessness. We don't pray. The biggest problem we have is prayerlessness. And and I think the biggest hindrance to pray, and I also think Satan's greatest ploy in spiritual attack, is that we lose sight of just this address. We lose sight of God as our Father. See, if God is just a boss to please so we get the promotion, then he's just being used, and and that won't sustain a vibrant spiritual life. Um, How often do we try to please our bosses at work? Because, frankly, we're just insecure. We're afraid we're going to lose our position. We want to look good before our boss. And so we pray in order to feel this spiritual security. Now, take a step back because I want you to imagine can you imagine a child wanting to please her father because she was afraid he would give up on her? What kind of relationship do you think that creates in the life of that child? How much therapy will she need as she gets older? A child wanting to please her father because she was so afraid he would give up on her. And so what this leads to is it leads to an externalism, it leads to a legalism, it leads to this incredible amount of anxious effort that eventually will either crush you or it will crush everyone around you. If prayer is merely a duty, we will eventually wear out. If prayer is just a means of asking God for things to gain, we will quickly become disinterested when we realize that our program and God's program are very often at odds. But what if prayer is communion with our Father who has called us, who's given us the right to be His children? What if prayer is coming to rest in the well done that we were created to hear? What if prayer is, is God shaping us into His will, if every time we pray we realize this privilege arises out of the God of the universe so loving you that he would give everything to have you and keep you and commune with you, then I think that duty quickly becomes delight. I love this line from J.I. Packer, the vitality of prayer lies largely in the vision of God that prompts it. Drab thoughts of God make prayer dull. An aloof, disinterested cosmic deity leads to a disinterested prayer life. We can't lose sight of who God is for us. We need to grasp God as our Father. So prayerlessness, that's the biggest prayer trap. But there are others. It's why I included this fuller context of the Lord's Prayer passage from Matthew. See, what Jesus is doing at this part of the Sermon on the Mount, and that's where this portion comes from, is Jesus' greatest, his longest sermon, is he's identifying the three acts of Jewish piety uh, where really that's how you would stand out as the most faithful, observant person. Uh, That was through fasting, almsgiving, and prayer. And he addresses all of them. In the Lord's Prayer section falls right in this address on proper prayer. And he addresses a couple of prayer traps. These are ways of praying that I think ultimately are life-sucking and, and, and they're prayer extinguishing. And so the first is hypocrisy or spiritual performance, and then what what I will call spiritual insecurity and anxiety. And so in 6.5 of Matthew, Jesus says, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogue and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. And truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Man, Jesus masterfully takes down self-righteousness here. I, I, I think it's just so in, incisive how, how he does this. He says, you know, if you, if you loudly and proudly uh, pray or, or do spiritual things so that other people see you and say, man, that guy is spiritual, um, Jesus says, that's wonderful. The transaction's complete. You got exactly what you were looking for. Well done. But it isn't Prayer. Instead of pleasing your father, which is like at the heart of prayer, you're just trying to impress people. But if you believe God is a good father to you, you know he sees you. And that is everything. I love this idea I I get from an an older pastor um, who's remarked that one of the reasons our churches in this day and age are hurting is because too many of us are living off of borrowed spirituality. It's a wonderful phrase very convicting phrase. We can live on borrowed spirituality, just like borrowed capital in, in, in maybe a different context. And so the idea here is I am a Christian. I am a follower of Jesus. It doesn't really mean much of anything on, on that day-to-day basis. And so I stay connected to my pastor and leaders and maybe other mature Christians in the pews. And so we are living on, on borrowed spirituality. My relationship with God is not because of communion with my Father. It's mediated through other people. How do we get out of that rut, which is really, really easy to fall into? You know your father is for you. You spend time with him. The goal of the relationship is the relationship. The second prayer trap, not hypocrisy, but spiritual insecurity or spiritual anxiety. And so Jesus talks about when you pray in verse 7 of Matthew 6, Do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. You don't have to impress God. Remember, you don't have to impress people. You also don't have to impress God. I think the most dramatic illustration of this comes from Elijah and the prophets of Baal from 1 Kings 18. You have this contest They both set up altars to their respective gods. You have the pagan priest. They got the altar with their sacrifice. You have Elijah. He has an altar and his sacrifice. They're both going to pray to their respective gods. And whatever God consumes the sacrifice, that's the living God. So the prophets of Baal go and they start praying. And then they get louder because nothing's happening. And they start to get louder And then they start to cut themselves, and they get louder, and they start to dance, and they get get louder and louder until they are wailing, and they're losing their voices. It's an extreme picture of heaping up empty phrases, but maybe it's the same idea that we get. God, are you listening? What do I need to do in order to gain your attention? What acts of obedience do I need until you listen to me? But Jesus says, your father is not hard of hearing, and his heart is not hard toward you. In fact, he knows what you need before you need it. Keep your prayers simple. Because you're not fighting for God's attention. You are spending time with the God who already belongs to you. Why do we pray? We certainly don't pray to change God's mind. You know, God uses prayer uh, it's his ordained means of accomplishing his fatherly purposes. He works through our prayers. And so I reject maybe the false conclusion or the, or the false dichotomy that says, well, really, in prayer, God just changes us. No, he does do that, but, but he also uses our prayers. He accomplishes his will, but, but make no mistake of the primary reason for prayer. Why, are, why, why prayer in the Westminster Confession is called a means of grace. We pray primarily for communion with God. We pray to know God. This was driven home this week uh, in, in my own adventures as, as a dad. Uh, recently, we were at a pool with a water slide, and, and, and the, my kids, I have three kids, they were all going on this water slide, and, and they, were, they were standing there dripping wet in like the cold you know ladder up to the slide. And they had no idea I was going to get on the slide. And so I come around the corner, and as they see me, do you know what they did? They cheered. Like, you, you've met me. They cheered and said, wait, Dad, you're going to join us. Now, before I worked on this passage, maybe I would say that was sweet, but I don't know why. And now maybe I, I think I do know why. Because that's our dad. That's who will watch me and who will experience life with me. And the reward is the relationship. What if that's a picture of fatherhood with God? We cheer as we go into the prayer room and say, That's our dad. That's who's for me. So my prayer for us is that we would grow into the knowledge of this reality. God's fatherly care toward us, that, that we have access to the God of the universe, that he, is the unf- that he is the faithful one upon whom we rely, that we have unshaken confidence in his, in his fatherly love. What a privilege. Like, that's what we want to communicate this morning, right? What a privilege, what a joy it is to join our elder brother Jesus, the one who taught us to pray, the one who gave us this example of what it is to pray, who lived a life of unceasing love and devotion, and yet who by his death, Guaranteed and assured us that we are to stand with him and we are to boldly say with him to our God, our Father. Let's pray. Our Father, what a privilege. What a privilege it is to to come into your presence, to have this access, to to know this this intimacy that we share with you. That that your heart's desire is for us to come and to be with you and to have this assurance and guarantee as we grab a fistful of Jesus' cloak. As we stand before our elder brother who insists through, through his own blood... That we have every right to be here. That we're supposed to be here. That it is good and it is right to be in the presence of God's throne room. Not a throne of judgment. Not a throne of fear, but a throne of grace. A place where we come with our requests. A place where we come with our broken hearts. A place where we come with our needs. A place where we come to experience communion with our God. Holy Spirit, would you do that work in us to to drive into our our bones that spirit of adoption that we cry out, Abba, Father, that we would know the essence of that prayer life, that that we would have our imaginations uh, expanded, that they would drive out drab views of prayer in, in order to, to remind us of, of this sweet essence. It's everything. Lord, it's, it's going to be really easy to leave this place and forget the last half hour. And so my prayer is that you would do a work among us. That you would create among us a praying people, doting children, who delight to cry out to our Father. Lord, we pray this in the name of our elder brother, Jesus, the one in whom we stand with, the one we pray with, the one we know prays for us. It's in his name we pray. Amen.